Hello, Mark. Joe. We're recording in the morning for a change. If I sound different, that is why. Unlike you and our guest, I am not a morning person. Yes, well, I saw your post on Facebook in which you likened yourself (laughs) to a... I don't know what that was, that thing was that you posted. Some kind of animal with really bad hair. Yeah. (laughs) Blinking in the morning going, (laughs) Yeah. And your actual uh, appearance this morning is uncannily similar to what you posted. No, actually, you look great. You look great. (laughs) Yeah, the hair's not quite as crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I did have a question, though, about, I I think, actually, I got another PEI question for you. Okay. Now, this might be controversial, but bring on the controversy. Yeah. We need a little controversy in this podcast. You weren't living in PEI in the eighties, were you? Oh yeah. I was, uh, I was still in high school in Summerside. Yeah. Okay. So then would you have voted in the plebiscite on the bridge? I must have. So were you pro or against the bridge? Because I I didn't realize, I was doing a bit of research about this and it's like, I guess this was a controversial thing. Well, I was definitely for the bridge because I mean, I'm like a science fiction guy, right? And the bridge was kind of like a science fiction-y. It's like, wow, we can actually put like a huge, long bridge. And, you know, just the other day, my wife asked me, she said, is this like one of the longest bridges in the world? So I looked it up and it's like, it's like the 60th longest bridge in the world. (laughs) Is it the longest bridge that goes over ice? It is. yeah. Yeah. It's the longest bridge that goes over iced water. And the longest bridge is like in China, I think, and it's like a lot, lot longer. So it's, you know, but it's still a very impressive bridge. And I was in favor. But that being said, we all loved the boats, the Abigail and the John Hamilton Gray and the vacation land. And, you know, I still remember them all. And, uh, but this is so much more convenient, especially right. now that I'm back living in the Maritimes and going back and forth to PEI all the time to see my family. It's just, it's great. The only thing you have to worry about now is not running into a moose. So, all right, over to our guest, Tanya Davis. Thank you very much for joining us today. And what do you think of the bridge? Thanks for having me. Yeah, I also live on PEI. I grew up in PEI and I surely would have voted for the bridge. I don't remember having the opportunity to vote in one, but um, I was so excited when it opened. And like you, I love the boats. Right now I live down east on PEI. So I actually live very close to the ferry that goes to Nova Scotia. So I still do get to take a boat in the summer months when the ferry is not broken or on fire. (laughs) (laughs) Which which happens apparently. But the bridge, yeah, I mean, it opened everything up in a new way for for us. I remember going, you want to leave the island and going to wait at the ferry, but then you didn't get a spot or there was a storm and you literally had to turn around and go home and you couldn't get off the island. So I appreciate the psychological uh, ability. <laughs> like in my head, it feels good to be able to exit. Yeah, but those boats were cool. You know, those boats, you could they drove trains onto those boats and configured them in the, and you wondered how could they float with all the an entire train on it, but they did. They did. I know. Yeah. They were very cool. Well, thank yeah. you. That that answers my question. <laughs> I, yeah, because for me personally, I would have wondered if maybe some people would be just like, I don't want to be that accessible. That that for me was the other psychological side. It was like, there's something nice about being separated from from everybody. Well, your own space, yeah. Right? And now we're getting into the psychology of Prince Edward Islanders, and yeah. uh, we could. <laughs> Well, okay. So first, I guess we should explain. So Tanya Davis, we invited you onto the podcast because uh, I'm a big fan of your music. Some of your songs, they're on permanent rotation on my playlist and some like Sad Secret, especially have become like one of my favorite songs. So it's a great pleasure to to talk to you and really respect your work. Um, But also you're from 
Prince Edward Island. And so am I, because I grew up in Summerside. And I think you grew up in Summerside, right? Yes, I did. I can't ask your age. That's an impolite question. But I'm <laughs> You can actually. I'm forty-four years old. Okay. So you're yeah, so you're fourteen years younger than me. But you must have gone to Three Oaks in your high school. Yep. I went to Three Oaks. I graduated and in nineteen ninety seven and then I promptly left PEI actually, pretty soon after I graduated. That's advisable, I think, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I'm glad I did. I, I never thought I'd live here again, actually, but now I'm back and I love it here. I've been here for three or four years. I don't know. Time has been a bit warpy lately, but when I, I do think it's really good to leave a small place if you have the opportunity and the resources because small places are beautiful and they have a lot to offer and they can be isolating, bridge or no bridge. So I learned a lot by leaving and now I have, you know, PEI has changed and grown in part maybe because of the bridge, you know, maybe it also contributed to the idea of PEI opening up to people. And so it is a more open, accepting, diverse place and therefore more interesting to me. And now it's, a, you know, worth being on in a totally new way. But it was good to grow up here. It was really good to leave for a while. And now it's good to be back. Yeah. I'm, I'm sort of curious before we get on to other stuff, uh, your comment that Prince Edward Island has changed. Do you really think that's true? And yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I really do. I really think it's true. Um, I wouldn't have moved back here otherwise because, you know, I mean, I grew up in Summerside as, as you did. It's a small town. Charlottetown is also a small city, but Summerside felt especially small and homogenous and not as open-minded or politically astute as I need it. I didn't right. know I needed it at the time. I left, you know, I was a little bit of a dramatic teenager maybe, and I, I left without really realizing why or what I felt like I was missing. And I only learned that in hindsight as I became an adult. But now when I'm back on PEI and when I've been visiting, before I moved the, made the decision to move back here, I was here for an artist residency for a few weeks. And then I went back to where I was living, which was Ottawa at that time. And life sort of had fallen apart and I needed to move from Ottawa. And I had had such a good time on PEI for three weeks in that fall with and meeting new people and there was events and shows and there was a, a protest that moved me and there was just like a bunch of things happening and I saw it in a new light. I was like, oh wow, there's a lot more going on here than I remembered and people who have moved PEI from other countries and other provinces and other worldviews and it just really That's helps. true. Yeah. yeah, it makes it way, like the amount of newcomers, the amount of just growth that Charlottetown especially has had, but that it has extended to other parts of the island because, you know, people can't all live in Charlottetown or afford to, but um, I really felt it and how, how it was more interesting and spending those few weeks here enabled me to consider existing here again. And yeah, so I kind of moved back as a temporary, let's see what this is like. And that was <laughs> just before the pandemic and I settled in and now I'm here. I never thought I would come back. I never planned to actually, because I loved Toronto. And then just as time went by, it just seemed to be like the sensible thing to do. And now that I'm back in the Maritimes, I love being back in the Maritimes. I love being a Maritimer again. Yeah, and we'll get Mark too. down here eventually. Won't we, Mark? <laughs> oh, definitely. I want to come for a visit for sure. 
No, no, I'm talking yeah. about permanently. Okay, possibly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm open to it. I like going to new places. <laughs> the very least, I'll come for you know a few weeks and see what it's like. <laughs> Anytime. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, it's you make it sound very appealing, but I do pay attention to the weather forecasts, and New Brunswick looks pretty brutal. Oh, the weather's great. <laughs> it's like it makes you feel alive. Yeah. Well, uh, the one thing that is appealing to me is that here in London, Ontario, we've kind of lost our snow. So we used to get snow that stayed all winter and now it's, it's like we get a bit of snow and then it melts and we're right. And, you know, we'll get a streamer that comes off the great lakes and, you know, we'll get 30 centimeters or even sometimes even more, but then it's gone within a week. Like, so that yeah, part does no. appeal to me because I love the cross country yeah. skiing. No, come on down. Yeah. yeah. And then we love to talk about the weather here. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> love to talk about it so much. Well, we should, we should ask Tanya to describe what it is she does. I mean, we know that you're the poor yes. poet laureate of PEI, which is congratulations on that. That's very cool. Yeah. Thank you. But what, what is your work about? And can you describe that to our listeners? Because yeah, sure. I, I, I can describe it and whether I can describe it succinctly is another thing. I, I, I say that because I've been in conversations lately with people, with, with friends and peers and out in the world, you know, when people are like, what are you up to? What have you been working on? And it's a bit unwieldy right now. And so the, that answer kind of trips me up because my career in the arts is very, it's, it's somewhat patchwork. Like I, I will say it's based in, in words pretty much. Um, words are the foundation. I'm a writer, a poet, a performance poet, and a performer. Um, so from there, the rest of the work branches out. So it's very much words-based and writing-based. As the poet laureate, I mean, that's a different conversation. I'm mostly still Tanya. I just happen to also be the poet laureate. And that involves, you know, a bit of advocating for the arts, promoting literacy, literature, poetry in particular, and then also being, I consider it like being a public poetic representative. So mm -hmm. I will go to events, sometimes write specifically for those events, which I do in my own artistic life as Tanya Davis. I also, part of my work is I take commissions to write for for things like this morning before this podcast, I'm working on a piece for World AIDS Day, an event that's happening here on PEI for World AIDS Day. So I still take those commissions and write for events, things that happened or things that are going to happen. I do also play music, although less so these days than I used to. And that's in part because I find the music industry harder and uh, less affordable. <laughs> Than, than mm. even the poetry industry is. Um, wow. But I still, yeah, I know, right? That says something. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's a but lot. I just said a lot right there. <laughs> uh, but, you're, but it was such a shame because you're, you're so good. Well, thank you. I still do, um, I still do shows uh, from time to time. In fact, I'm booking some for next year. And I, with my performance poetry kind of stuff, I do incorporate music with that often. So I have another new project that was like a show that was some poetry, some music. Um, I have a duo with my partner here. Uh, it's called the County Line Romance. And we play more like country folk stuff together. My partner is a bassist. And uh, so Are I we still... allowed to ask our, uh, your partner's name? Yeah, their name is Carly Howell. Okay. And they moved here from Toronto, not too many years ago, during the pandemic, actually, to be with me. And yeah, so they work in, in music and arts as well as a bassist and educator and writer and performer. And then we have our little project together called The County Line Romance because we live on the County Line Road here in Eastern PEI. 
So, okay, yeah, so you do a lot and you're very busy and uh, and accomplished. And despite that, I, I think that you've done the homework that we've imposed upon you. Uh, <laughs> and thank you for that. And sometimes we know about the piece of art that our guests have selected and other times like today, we don't. So this is uh, kind of exciting. I'm very curious to hear what you've chosen. Well, I, upon reflection and going over some things in my head that have meant something to me or spurred me in a direction or just affected me, I settled pretty quickly, actually, on the movie Dirty Dancing. Oh, oh boy. Patrick Swayze. <laughs> yeah. Cool. And uh, Elizabeth Gray, is it? Jennifer Gray. Jennifer, Jennifer Gray. Gray. That's yeah. It. yeah. That's a great choice. And so why did you choose that? Well, I chose that because Dirty Dancing, to me, I don't know when it came out, the 80s, sometime in the 80s. It's really about the soundtrack to Dirty Dancing. The music from Dirty Dancing is the first music I loved on my own innately in my own little like self. Instead of just, you know, I, I didn't grow up in a very musical household. Like we had, my mom is from a French Acadian family. So she has some musical roots and appreciation for it, but we didn't actively listen to music or seek it out. It was just the radio. The radio was always always on. Hmm. And I had no choice in what the radio station was. And PEI, you know, for that matter, didn't have a lot of great options, nor did we have the internet yet. So just the music that was on in my household all the time was background, I don't know, adult contemporary soft rock a lot for there was some AM, like oldie stations that were in rotation. And I did right. really love, I actually liked them too, because I like old music. But I never had music as a hobby or interest of mine that I sought out and we didn't talk about it. I, it wasn't a very artistic household. I did take piano lessons for a while and I was in the band. So I was, but it, it felt more like a, like an extracurricular pursuit or something I should do. Like I was a what, very- What did you play in the band? I, played, I was in the band too. Were yeah. you? Oh, I played the flute. Okay. Yeah. What Great. did you play? I played, uh, I started playing the baritone and then I wound up playing uh, the baritone and the trombone. Oh, nice. And wow, loved cool. it. Yeah. Under yeah. Uh, our band leader at the time was uh, David Voy. Who yes, was, uh, he was mine. He died when I was in high school. He died when I was in grade 11, but he was my band teacher for... I loved David Voy. Yeah. Many of us, uh, I mean, that was a great tragedy. He died uh, so young. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he used yeah. to call me rhubarb. Aww, <laughs> rhubarb. <cute>. Okay, why did <laughs> yeah. he call you rhubarb? I got to ask that question. You can't I don't know. Dangle that. I don't know. He just that was his nickname for me. And in an earlier podcast, you asked me what my nicknames were, and I yeah, I well, didn't say that one because yeah, he didn't like that one. I, it wasn't my favorite, <laughs> but he was he was great. He was a very influential figure in my life. You know, I might have gone. He wanted me to go and study music and. I didn't. Sometimes I think about that. But anyway, yeah. So you were in the band? Yeah, I was in the band. I was in the junior high band with Peter Gallant before that. And so I did do musical stuff, but again, kind of like an extracurricular activity or a a thing I should do or something. I didn't have an innate love yet of any of the arts besides writing, I would say. But anyway, so when Dirty Dancing came out, I just remember something being activated or turning on inside me for some of the music in that movie. I also loved the movie and I loved Patrick Swayze a lot mm. and, you know, can talk about, it was maybe my introduction to, you know, some other issues I didn't know, like there's, you know, abortion rights come up in there, class struggle. It was a very white movie. It didn't have for a lot of racial analysis, but it did introduce some things that I hadn't been open to yet. And I wouldn't be very much in Summerside still for years 
after that movie. But the music, I remember I bought, I guess it was a cassette tape probably at that time. For my Walkman, I bought the soundtrack and I would sit in my bedroom with the lights off and sit on the floor and listen to, especially there were some songs over and over alone and I would cry and it was, I wasn't in an emotionally um, adept household. We didn't talk about feelings a lot. I had a lot of feelings as makes sense now that I'm, you know, a working artist and a creative person and an emotional communicator. But at the time we didn't have that. So I used this music. I would listen to the Dirty Dancing soundtrack in my room alone and cry just to get something out, just to feel something and express something. And again, didn't know how how notable that was at the time, but it, it made sense years later. And it's still, I was listening to that soundtrack last night, actually, while I was cooking. I have a vinyl. I was listening to more Dirty Dancing because there are two records because there was a lot of songs. Oh. So I was listening to the second one while cooking. So what what are some of the songs and and artists on this soundtrack? Well, really, my all-time favorite that was introduced to me and is still one of my all-time favorites is Otis Redding. So Otis Redding has the song, These Arms of Mine. And it's just so beautiful. It's such a beautiful song. And for those who are listening and know the movie Dirty Dancing and can put the scenes to the music or not, I can. I can. All the songs that come up, I can imagine the scenes because I watched the movie a lot. But this is the scene where Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Grey start dancing in, in, in Patrick Swayze's cabin. It's the beginning of the love scene. And it was just, you know, sexy and romantic. And it's like just a new thing to me. And then huh. the other song that comes right after that, if you're watching the movie, is Cry to Me by Solomon Burke. And so those two songs in succession just got at my heartstrings and... Yeah, so those are my favorite on it, and they started me loving old soul music. So it's not the the usual, because you know when I asked that question, I, I thought that you would immediately say songs that like pop songs that I was familiar with, but no, these are this is like music of a higher order, if I may. Mark, have you seen the movie? I have, but I I'll be honest, it's one that didn't stick in my head very well, though the music was great. I do remember the music being awesome because I also like soul music, so. Uh, yeah. And I remember it wasn't that long ago that uh, Jennifer Grey was, you know, memefied from the nobody puts baby in the corner thing. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that comes up a lot. That, that comes yeah. up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And also for that movie, I love dancing, but I didn't know that yet either. And growing up, I didn't see any dance. I never saw people dance for years and years of my life, which is maybe not abnormal in some cultures, including maybe PEI in the at that time. I never could dance. And it's something that I wish that I could. Like I was always awkward at the high school dances. I'll tell you a story about dancing. So, you know, okay. I'm, you already know I'm not a morning person. So when I was in Queens Players, we did the musical cabaret Queens. And, and so it was dancing as well as singing and acting. So I was not a triple threat. In fact, I was so bad at learning the steps, I had to go to the remedial dance practice first thing on Saturday mornings at 8 a.m. You had to take remedial dancing. I had to go for the remedial dancing so that they could, they literally had to drill it into me, my muscle memory. That's the only way you could get me to like dance along with everybody else. You know, I can still do most of the routine from a couple of songs because of that. (laughs) Yeah. Gee, are you a good dancer, Tanya? I would say that I am. Yeah. 
I'm not a trained dancer. Um, Lucky. I am. I, well, I say that I am. I really enjoy dancing and it's been a big part of my life. And I mean more like dancing at clubs and parties, dancing yeah, uh, yeah with groups of people. I, I do want to take me and my partner. We're actually dancing in the kitchen last night um, to one of the songs from the soundtrack. And it's more of a, it's not quite salsa, but it's it's called the Toro a Poco and it's um Latin American or maybe Cuban rhythm. And so we were tra- dancing a little bit and we were talking about, oh, we should take partner dance just to, you know, we have rhythm together, but to learn some of the steps and the moves. Yeah. Um, so I've been more of a solo dancer, like dancing at raves, dancing, you know, in that, in that context. And I'm not exaggerating when I say it's like changed the course of my life. Some of the nights that I've gone mm. out dancing um, have really given me a lot. And I didn't know that at the time of this movie either. But there's one scene where, because the dirty dancing, for people who don't know it, <laughs> like there's, I won't explain the whole movie, but there is, you know, they're at a resort, a summer resort, and there's these classes where people can take sort of ballroom dancing type lessons and stuff. And one of the characters, Patrick Swayze, teaches people how to dance in these ways. He has, you know, dancing lessons with, say, old ladies at the resort, and they learn how to salsa. But then at this one point in the movie, it's after hours and all the staff are in the staff quarters, which is this class division also. Like all the hmm. staff, lots of people of color, working class people who keep this resort running after their day where they teach old rich people how to dance and they serve them fancy dinners. They go to their staff quarters and Baby, who Jennifer Grey is known as in the in the movie, goes to one with with someone. She, you know, she's a guest, so she's not usually in the staff quarters, but she finds herself there. The doors open and all the staff are just dancing. Hmm. There's socks off they're just dancing for like you know release joy connection for like love and sex and just fervor in a way that the juxtaposition between watching them dance and watching the dance lessons that happen at the kind of bougie uptight summer resort is so stark and as soon as you open the doors you just see all these people dancing they were dancing i think the first song when they open the doors is love man by otis redding uh, or that's one of them that comes on in that scene. And that is a profound image to me too, because it just, I didn't know yet that that dancing, that dancing and community of people, it's something I've done a lot in my life in the queer community, going out with queer friends and dancing and the, those sort of safe, really um, euphoric spaces. It has brought me so much joy, safety, connection, inspiration, and... Uh, so that was just a little seed that maybe, not even a seed planted, but something that happened in my young brain that I wouldn't know exactly about until, you know, many years later. Yeah, I feel so grateful. I feel like I didn't move towards it intentionally. Maybe it moved towards me or I walked through enough doors with curiosity that then I got swept up into a totally new world. And I'm really grateful. And I I needed to leave PEI to experience that or for that mm-hmm. to happen to me. And I, I know um, that you did some brave things that I wouldn't have had the guts to do, like uh, hitchhike to British Columbia yes. <laughs> when you were young. Yeah, I did that. Yeah. It was very fun. <laughs> I wouldn't do it now. <laughs> really? No way. I mean, I was naive, young, probably a bit entitled or definitely a bit entitled. Like, oh, here I am, me and my friend, we're just going to hitch rides all across the country and we'll be fine. And we were fine. <laughs> we were two young women, albeit white women. You know, our, our parents were so worried about us and I just didn't care at the oh time. Oh my God, I would have been. Yeah. yeah, I was like, whatever, you don't understand youth, you don't understand me. <laughs> now when I think about it, I was, 
you know, I was 20. I took a break from university and, uh, and hitchhiked out West to Vancouver. And I just didn't care what my parents thought. And I, I'm glad I did it. And I'm glad I didn't, like, they didn't say don't go, but you could tell they were disappointed or worried, of course. But now when I think about it, I'm like, oh, I probably put them through so much stress and anxiety. That's what kids are for, right? That's what happens. I mean, you have to separate yourself from your family at a certain point. That's true. Uh Yeah, you do. Yeah. And it's like, um, it's a cliche journey story, but it's, it's cliche because it's true. Like we're, people do that all over the world in, in so many ways. And I will not have a cell phone because there are none yet. Yeah. 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 Oh, well. Did you call your parents often? (laughs) Yeah, I called them enough, I think, from pay phones along the way. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm feeling really guilty (laughs) about all the stress I put my parents through traveling in Asia (laughs) during the middle of revolutions and stuff. Oh, my God. You should feel guilty, Mark. (laughs) Well, I mean, yeah, because, yeah. (laughs) I'm joking. I don't feel guilty at all. No, I was going to ask you about um, the dancing. Did that have an influence on your poetry? Because I've I've only seen the web, so that's the only thing of yours that I've seen. But there really is a flow to it. So I wonder if mm-hmm. you, if your other work has that feeling as well that I can see I, coming out of dance. Yeah, I think that there is some influence, both direct and indirect. I I started dancing just before I started writing poetry in this fashion. I always wrote poetry. I was a writer as a kid and I wrote short stories and a small novella and like things, but I wasn't going to pursue the arts or or anything like the arts because I didn't know that was a possibility or a, a job even. So I had gone to university for other things. And around the time I started dancing, what like I would go out to pubs with, you know, my, the women I lived in residence with and we'd go dancing. That that to me is a different thing. Like having double vodka tonics and dancing at a <laughs> pub on a Thursday for you know, not yeah. that's not the kind of dancing I I think of. When I was twenty I moved to Ottawa for a for a year for university and I had switched programs and I went out to my first rave and that that was the dance. That was when right. my life like like noticeably took a turn. Um, there was something that happened to me that night in my head. And that was the first time I ever danced alone. And I danced solo under, you know, big lights and loud music and all these people. And it, it just changed something in me. So that was when I was 20. And I hitchhiked to BC within months of that. And then within one month, probably of arriving in, in BC, I went out to a show downtown in East Van on, on Hastings Street. And it was at a venue called the Church of Pointless Hysteria. And it was a really cool art space up, you know, in an old, like lofty, old, abandoned building of artists and activists and queers and weirdos. And they would put on shows. And so I ended up there one night and there was spoken word performance by Shane Koizan, who's a pretty well-known Canadian poet at this point, and Kinney Starr, who is a poet and musician. They were both performing that night and I went in and I saw them and I had never heard anything like it. I didn't know that poetry could be performed out loud. I had never heard of slam poetry, spoken words, anything like it. I hadn't listened to really even to hip hop music very much at that point. Like it was just, oh, wow, a whole new thing. And so those events happened within, you know, months of each other. So I would say back to your question about is there a a relationship between dancing and the way I do my poetry or my music. I'd say that there is, and it it is a frenetic 
quality, sometimes fast paced. There's lilting and rhythm in how I write and perform poetry. And I think that is tied to, to music and to the rhythm of that and how I, how I just want to move a lot. What was the first art that you did that made you realize that you could do this for a living? The first time probably was within months of watching that that performance at the Church of Pointless Hysteria, those and those two poets, and having that new kind of epiphany, I decided to write a poem and do it at an open mic in Vancouver, in East Vancouver, on Commercial Drive. There was this place called Café du Soleil. It just closed, actually, about a year or two ago. It's been open forever. So they had a performance, like an open mic once a month, that I think might have been at the time, like, I don't know if it was for women, but there were a lot of women and queer people there. And it was called Cat Call, I think. Anyway, <laughs> I went to this open mic and I had written a poem after, you know, seeing those two other poets. And I was, I was nervous. I was so sick about it, like to get up on stage and say my poem. Like, I think I, I don't know if I vomited or almost did. I was <laughs> so nervous. And uh, I used to be an athlete in high school and in university too. And it was a similar nerves that I had before a game day. It was like this performance anxiety. I was mm -hmm. like, oh, I have to perform. But anyway, I got up on stage and did this poem and it was about labels and boxes. And I was very like, I was just learning a lot. I was a sponge. I was newly political. I was newly queer. I was just righteous and like really mm. expanding quickly on my ideas about the world. So I wrote a poem about that kind of and labels and boxes. We put people in and I said it out loud at this open mic and I got such an overwhelmingly positive response. It was a full house of people clapped. I got some people stood up. I It was immediate, the feedback and then the feedback loop and then how I felt. Hmm. It just, that was, and that was the beginning. That was the yeah. first time I'd never done it before. And it was just very clear. And you want more. Yeah, that You're I wanted more yeah. and I <laughs> wanted to do that more and... It just, yeah, I guess I experienced this connection, which is mm -hmm. what I've always been seeking and what I was seeking very, you know, very firmly then. Yeah. What was it that you were going to do? Like, what what were you studying? And, and I gathered that there was a change of direction at that point. Mm -hmm. I was going to be a teacher because I always loved to write and I loved English. So I just had this idea that I was going to be an English teacher and then I was going to write in the summertime when teachers, you know, have a break. So I really had no critical thought about what I was going to do. I think I was just a sheep in a flock following along. It's like, okay, after high school, we go to university and then we get hmm. a job. Teacher is a good job. You know, I just, I had no true desire to be a teacher. In fact, I hate teaching, I have to say. <laughs> I really dislike it. When people ask me, I used to give more poetry workshops because people, you know, and no, it's just a, it's a natural thing, but it's, it's incorrect that artists can teach or, you know, creative yes. people or like any, not even just creative people. If you know how to do something, you must therefore be able to teach it. But I really don't, mm. that's not true. And oh, it's not yeah. true for me. Yeah, I agree. So, it's another skill set. It's a totally different skill yeah. set and you can cultivate it. You yes. can become a better teacher, but I don't have the innate skill set and nor do I have the interest. It actually gives me a lot of anxiety. So I think it's funny now that I was 
assumed I was going to go and become a teacher. <laughs> and, and no, wow. not at all. I realized that after, actually in my, after the first two years, I went to two years of that English. And then I was like, that's, I don't need to an English degree to be a writer. Maybe I should get another thing and be a writer. So I was an athlete at the time. So I went to health science for a year, like kinesiology which was, <laughs> yeah, totally other path. And I only did a year of that before I took a break, <laughs> never to return. Wow. Yeah. You say you were an athlete. Uh, I believe it was rugby that you played, right? Yeah. Yeah. I played basketball yeah. too, but rugby, um, I played through high school and then into university. So you wind up working in the arts and you're making a go of it. And um, I, f I feel like maybe I've complimented you enough, but I'm still going to compliment you more. <laughs> <laughs> the, the production is um, of what I hear is so polished. I want to know where you did it, who the producer was, who the recording engineers were, and you know how you got that sound. From there, when you said that you're kind of moving away from that because it's so difficult to make a, a go of it with the musical industry, that's so dismaying to hear. You know that you can produce such good work and still find it challenging. Yeah, well, it's interesting that you you think of it as polished and hear it as polished. That's great. Thank you. I don't know if I ever thought that, or it certainly wasn't a goal of mine to make polished music. I did work with some good engineers and producers. The single, The Web, that you that you heard, I recorded in Nova Scotia with Daniel Ledwell. He's from PEI, and he engineered and mixed that. And then my record called Clocks and Hearts Keep Going, I did it with Jim Bryson out of Ottawa. He produced that, and we recorded it in Ottawa at a place called Little Bullhorn, but yeah, Jim Bryson had a big hand in how that record sounded and in some yeah. of the production ideas of that that record. And I did one in between that I didn't put out physically. I just put it out online as a part of a, a film I was in called Heartbeat, which Andrea Dorfman made in Halifax. So I made music to go with that film with um, a Halifax guy's a staple around Halifax named Charles Austin. Mm. So he was in the Super Friends, a lot of bands. He's recorded tons of records over the years coming out of Halifax. So that's where I did that one. Yeah, well, you guys obviously knew and know what you're doing. For my part, I hope you do more. Yeah, but, I would like uh, to do more. And actually, I have had stirrings to um, record some more music where me and my partner, Carly, might also record some together. It's and a little bit a matter of funds and, and cash flow uh, recording. If you can do it at home, you can save a lot of money, but we don't have all the gear. So, you know, you do it at studios. And I love being in studios. I actually really love recording but it's so expensive. It's so expensive to make a single, let alone, you know, a record, like a single, anywhere from a thousand, two thousand dollars, a record, 10, 20 more. People spend, you know, so much money making a record. And I have spent a lot of money in the past. I've invested a lot of my money into making uh, records and recording and touring. The costs of touring are insane. Like, no, people aren't buying as much music. Like, I'm not saying anything new. This is definitely mm -hmm. being talked about right well, now. Well, but you but know what? I think a lot of people don't know about that. I just yeah. was thinking one of my students has pitched a story about how the merch rules have changed so that uh, the venues that you go to actually claw back some of the merch that you're selling. So it used to be, you know, bands would have T-shirts and stuff, and that's you know, where a big chunk of their income came from and that's being clawed away. Or you have to sign a contract where you have to increase the price. If you're like opening for a band, you have to increase the price of your stuff to match theirs. I mean, it's like, that's so hostile to the artist. Yeah. I mean, this is what, you know, Cory Doctorow was writing about recently. It's the big squeeze, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's capitalism. It's just another example of where, where it fails. Like peop, some people are making a lot of money off music. Executive CEOs are, are people who are 
making money off the industry. People have jobs in the music industry and they make a living too. Like, but a lot of the artists at the heart of it, the the writers, the creators, the musicians, the side players are not making very much money. And some of our fees, like if you get asked to play somewhere right now, it's the same as it was 10 years ago, but we all know that <laughs> gas is more, food is more, mm-hmm. housing is yeah. more. Other people are making more in some salaries, not in all of them, but a lot of artists are not. And we're still being offered the same fees, but our costs are way up. Yeah. So all that said, I, I love to make music. I love to be in the studio and I, I would like to have more songs and put more things out there. I just can only do it either with funding, with support from someone. Like I don't really have patrons and I, or, or do it on my own slowly with probably not the best production quality because we don't really have the gear. So it's uh, hard to figure out these days how to make music and not lose money. And I can't lose money anymore. I will say like, I'm honestly, I, I years ago went, I filed for bankruptcy and a lot of that, you know, was because of expenses I incurred being an an artist and also mismanagement of my expenses, financial illiteracy, bad decision-making and being taken advantage of also by banks. Like there's lots of factors, but I, I invested so much money as a musician and I never saw the return. And then I just got over my head. So yeah, now I'm I, very diligent about that. I won't I won't yeah. spend money. I, I think it's to. it's very common. Mark and I are both writers. It's so easy to fall into the trap of it basically just becoming an expensive hobby, you know? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, where you're just, uh, yeah, you invest all this money and you think that somehow magically there's going to be some return. So let me ask you this then, because one of the things that we like to do in, in this podcast is try to get people to support the the artists that we're talking to. What is the best way for people to support yeah. you and your work? Yeah. Well, I guess there are a couple of ways, you know, coming out to live performances and shows, but that's very localized and I don't perform that much, but that is, you know, a, a direct way to support artists, of course. I think for me, I do have stuff available online. I have a Bandcamp page. So if people are listening to my music or streaming it a lot, they can go to my Bandcamp. It's like Tanya Davis and and then buy it. So like buy it digitally so that, you know, you can listen to it. That, that comes to me. Bandcamp is, you know, they take a percentage of sales, but it's modest. It's, you know, average. So that's a way. Also, I do eventually get money on Spotify, you know, like <laughs> once it adds up. I wouldn't say it's the best way. I'd say Bandcamp is more direct and yeah. And then also, you know, sharing it, sharing it is a really good support because then other people might share it again, or that kind of creates this web that goes out like, and then it's the burden isn't on. I'm I'm admittedly not a great marketer or promoter. It's the part of the business that interests me the least. I don't excel at it. I should be better. So, you know, just so people know what I'm up to and I can share my work data, you know, there's all this stuff that I could do better so people could support me. But um, one thing that they can do in in that absence is to tell other people or to share my, my music or poetry along. I do have lots of stuff online that they can just watch and listen to. Well, we'll link Hmm. to all of that so that people can check out the show notes and find the stuff easily. Yeah. Now you mentioned that you don't do Patreon. Is there a reason for that or... Yeah, it might be interesting. I've definitely thought about it. I think I've even subscribed and started writing out a profile and abandoned the mission probably more than once. I think it's a mix of just having the wherewithal and administrative effort to put that together. Mm -hmm. And then also a little bit of like uncertainty with the platform of it. Like 
I don't want to ask people for for that. And I realize like Patreon is an exchange. Fans and audience give money to artists so that, and then artists in turn give them back something, a single, yeah. a, a piece of writing, whatever, whatever it is. I don't know if I want to get into that into that loop of having to create things on a schedule like that. I already do a lot of scheduled work because I take right. commissions and I have contracts. And so I'm beholden to people on deadlines and I'm finding it really squishes in on my own creativity a little bit. Like I, I work a lot more from outside in than inside out. And I think Patreon would might end up being another version of that for me. And so mm. I just haven't been willing to, to try it out yet. I would love, you know, people to support me but i also feel awkward asking in, in that yeah. in that context have you i so this is another question just related to that is have you thought about doing like for if you wanted to do another album at some point maybe doing an indiegogo or something like that might be a model that would work because then you're not constantly having to produce new material for your listeners they you know yeah. they help you build the album and then they get the album yeah, I know. I know. And I have so many friends who have done that. Um, I feel like for a while, there were so many campaigns online mm -hmm. for like GoFundMe, Kickstarter, Indiegogo. Yeah. There was a lot of them. And I haven't seen as many. I don't know if they... That's have, true. If I'm online less or if they've kind of dropped off, there was a real wave where everyone was doing it for a while. And I started making a page for that. And I also <laughs> came across the same impulse of like, oh, I feel awkward about this. And I don't want to ask people. I'm very bad at asking for that kind of support. I'm good at <laughs> accepting it though. I have to yeah, say yeah. It's a, when people offer it to me and I have had like patrons or people who have supported me in big ways. And I, I'm not one of those people who say, oh no, oh no, don't know. It's fine. I'm, I'm one of those people who would say thank you <laughs> and accept the help. I just am bad at those campaigns i'm not a good campaigner at yeah. all it strikes me that you've got you're part of a really ancient tradition really in a sense like if you're if uh some of your income is coming from commissions those are essentially like patrons like from you know <laughs> yeah exactly from, from yeah. the renaissance you know you've got a you know you've got a rich lord who's gonna give you some money to produce a cohesional portrait of someone in the family and then you can spend the rest of your time doing something great <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep. Um, that's, it's true. I'm still in that model. Uh, it's a bit, yeah, a bit ad adapted from those times, yes. but it has a, there's a thread that runs through it. And I like that a lot. I do, I do like, you know, my commission work is one of the good things about it, um, is that it's a parameter in which to exist and create, and there's an end, mm -hmm. um, because they're not just, someone's not just commissioning me to live and be a poet. They're commissioning a specific poem for a specific right. deadline and then it's over so i do i do find it restful to work on those deadlines and within those time frames even if sometimes if i take on too many commissions at once then i don't have opportunity to do any of my own other work so i gotta i gotta be careful of the balance but it is a good model for support for me Mark, any uh, final thoughts or questions? No, I just we, uh... was lovely meeting you, and thank you for. I, it's just so I, I love talking to poets. Like we just, yeah, more poets. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's good. Uh, poets love to talk. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This has been terrific, um, and we really appreciate you taking the the time to to come and talk to us. And uh, and if there's ever anything that you want to uh, champion or promote or anything, drop us a line, and we'd love to have you back on. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tanya. Great to chat.
So Mark, you and I have discussed how people can support this podcast. And uh, one of the ways I would like to get them to support us is by, and I think you're going to like this, by uh, purchasing one of your books. Ooh, I like that. How about your books? We're going to start with your books. We'll start with my books? Okay. And today I would like to point people in particular to Alpha Max, which is a novel about the metaverse, which is kind of in vogue these days. Yeah, and it's, it doesn't take a lot of the standard approaches that the metaverse stories do. I think it's a bit more grounded. It's funny, and it's, uh, and it's witty, and it's smart, and it's entertaining. Go to recreative.ca slash support, and you can find our books there. Alpha Max by Mark A. Rayner. Recreative is produced by Mark Rayner and Joe Mahoney. Technical production and music by Joe Mahoney. Web design by Mark Rayner. Show notes and all episodes are available at recreative.ca. That's re-creative.ca. Drop us a line at joemahoney at donovanstreetpress.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.